Hello and welcome to episode 91 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. I'm Peter Alegi. And here I'm Peter Lim, and our guest today is Dr. Peter Cole, who teaches U.S., South African, and comparative history at Western Illinois University. And he's also a research associate in the Society Work and Development Institute at Witts University in Johannesburg. Professor Cole researches the history of social movements, of workers, deindustrialization, technology, popular culture, and the maritime world. His previous books have covered the IWW in Philadelphia, uh, that's Wobblies on the Waterfront, published by University of Illinois Press in 2007, and Ben Fletcher, The Life and Times of a Black Wobbly, also published in that year. He's published very widely in such journals as the International Review of Social History, International Labour and Working Class History, and Safundi. His current book project is Labour, Race and Technology on the Durban and San Francisco Waterfronts. Welcome. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Well, we've just come, uh, all of us, uh, from your fascinating talk here at MSU, uh, comparing San Francisco and Durban. And just yesterday came news from California that the International Longshore and Warehouse Union, local or branch, uh, will actually shut down ports on May Day this year, International Workers' Day, to protest, quote, racist police killing of mainly black and brown people. Obviously, this is an engaged, committed union who've acted before in solidarity with many others. That's right. Local 10, which is the San Francisco Barrio Dock Workers Union, has often seen that its power on the waterfront can translate into an opportunity to make political statements of a variety of sorts. So sometimes, for instance, they've gone on strike in solidarity with other workers, like in 2011 on the anniversary of Martin Luther King's murder, in solidarity with public sector workers in Wisconsin, but also in 2010 and 2014, refusing to unload cargo from Israel um, and refusing to cross essentially a community activist picket line in Oakland. And um, again, there have been racist police in the San Francisco Bay Area. The, the most dramatic example was a black man named Oscar Grant killed a few years ago by the Oakland Transportation BART. But... Uh, in Charleston, South Carolina, dock workers are also going on strike, and there's actually a long history of connections between Charleston dock workers who are in a different union and San Francisco Barrio dock workers. And so this is actually going to be a multi-port action on May 1st of this year in, because one of the recent killings of, by a white police officer of a black man happened in the Charleston area, and the man's brother actually is in the union in Charleston that is a dock workers' union. And the other side of your comparative uh, research at the moment is is in South Africa, in Durban, uh, another global port, another port city. Yeah, and well, in Durban, which is the largest port in South Africa, the union has also taken stands against the treatment of Palestinians by Israel in 2010 during the Israeli attacks on Gaza. And so the union that the dock workers are a part of, the Labor Federation COSATU is also very involved in solidarity work with Palestine. So what is interesting, one of the many interesting things is that dock workers 
a very cosmopolitan group of people, very international in their thinking. They sort of are experiencing literally every day sort of cargo moving and back and forth ideas and people. And so as a result, really think much larger than many of us who are often focused on a single land or a single place and see themselves as part of an international community. And so not only in these two ports and not only in these two countries, we've seen actually dock workers and sailors engaged in solidarity actions um, for issues that have nothing directly to do with their labor conditions themselves, right? Um, so really, I say, making political statements through their work, their workplace power, right? And so um, the Durban dock workers famously in 2008 refused to unload weapons from China that were to, intended for neighboring Zimbabwe during a violent election cycle. And when I interviewed dock workers in Durban or the dock work leaders in Durban local in 2010, they said, well, you know, these w weapons are going to be used to kill Zimbabwean workers because the opposition in Zimbabwe was actually led by a guy named Morgan Zangarai, who was a labor leader. And they're also mindful, apropos given the recent xenophobic riots, that um, Zimbabweans were supportive of the struggle against apartheid. And so they saw themselves in a way in 2008 when they refused to unload weapons, um, giving back a little to what Zimbabweans had given to South Africa in the long anti-apartheid struggle. This is sort of at the <clears throat> heart of solidarity, this uh, reciprocity of, of, of solidarity, and it has a, has a deep history. Very deep history, and you don't just have to be a sort of manual laborer to appreciate solidarity between human beings, but it is important to know that working class people have this long tradition of um, collective identities and collective actions, both on the, on the job, um, where these unions all happen to share a same motto, an injury to one is an injury to all, but also even in sort of um, off work, right? Like so the typical in many cultures, right, um, I buy you a drink, you buy me a drink. If you happen to be at a shabine or a bar or a saloon, that has actually deep roots too, right? Um, and it's more so in actually working class communities traditionally than in uh, more wealthy areas where this notion of treating actually exists. Uh, there's a long tradition of really people helping each other, but also sort of enjoying each other, a sociability that I think comes along with it. And I think that very much is the case among dock workers um, and many other types, I'd say, of workers. Now, you're doing comparative history, which I find very, very difficult to do. And, and many historians who have tried it uh, have struggled with it. You know, are you doing parallel histories? Are you intertwining them? And is it thematic? How do you handle the different contexts and chronologies? Very challenging. But you pointed out in your talk that both San Francisco and Durban were major ports that were key to the urban development of their cities. That the cities grew because and, and, and around the port. There are also key nodes in both the national economies of the United States and, and South Africa at the different times that they developed, and also key nodes in international trade. Now, uh, the, there are also some important differences, I think, between San Francisco and Durban. So how, first of all, how did you come to include Durban in your analysis, starting as an Americanist? And, and then perhaps uh, related to that, um, what do you see are the, some of the difficulties in handling these two uh, quite different cities and ports? So comparative history is very exciting and I believe very challenging. Most people probably, definitely me, come from one side, right? Like, so I was trained as a historian of the United States, and I'm an American born and bred. So picking up a whole new field 
well after graduate school is in a way sort of bold or stupid, depending on how you want to phrase it, right? Because my expertise is sort of, I'd like to think, grown over the last five or six years, but nevertheless, I acknowledge the limitations I have, right? Like, uh, And so, you know, just learning about a whole nother place and trying to sort of then say something meaningful um, is uh, humbling often. And um, also mindful of the issues of language, really. One of the great issues involved in research in multiple different countries now, South Africa, as many of us know, English is widely spoken and also written, and that's essentially why my project is possible. Although I'm aware that like I'm limited in some real ways because of my language inabilities, right? My limitations, um, and that's an example of a difference, right? Like uh, not only that one, but there's many others, right? Like uh, South Africa and America share much in common um, industrially, economically, um, diverse and multiracial societies, but also are really different, and so trying to sort of um, juggle the that um, that you have a similar enough comparison but mindful of the differences is very real and so sometimes the differences are of course what we want to sort of highlight right like it's not the whole purpose of comparative history is not simply to say look these two places are similar Um, we know that but also even if you add another dimension to that similarity sometimes actually useful things can come out of difference right and so the first I think great comparative historian is George Fredrickson and, you know, he highlights, for instance, in the fight against apartheid, black Africans were not citizens and so couldn't appeal to the Constitution in order to sort of gain legal rights, whereas in the United States, African Americans actually could sue in court and basically say, look, um, these states are not living up to the 14th Amendment, right? Like, and that was a real benefit, essentially, to African Americans in their fight for legal equality. And, but it was a hindrance, right? And so highlighting the difference actually reveals much about like, what is possible um, in terms of, for instance, that matter, the, the struggle for racial equality. Right? Um, that's a great example. And um, I try to sort of build on that th- themes too. Um, it's very exciting to do comparative history because um, most people who are educators and professors like to learn. And so for me, it was also a wonderful opportunity to learn much more and as anyone who's traveled um, outside of their home country knows, like you often become more interested in your home when you've been elsewhere trying to figure out your home, your own identity and society helps actually by, to sort of leave it, uh, perhaps ironically. And we had Robert Vinson uh, a couple of years back on the podcast, and one of the things he was talking about was the West Indian sailors who were coming in and out of South African ports, spreading Garveyism, carrying copies of the Negro world with them, copies that would eventually wind their way up into the hills of the trans sky and uh, have ripple effects all over the what is now called the Eastern Cape. So certainly the circulation of ideas and goods and the role of black workers, uh, very, very important in the history of both the United States and South Africa, but also of the, of the global black world and diaspora. Writing comparative history can be indeed tough. I mean, I've, on the back burner, I've had a comparative history project comparing South Africa and India for a number of years. But um, you and I, uh, Peter Cole, have just done a, a chapter comparing anti-apartheid uh, solidarity of US and Australian maritime workers. And um, one way around it, I suppose, that we hit on was to to bring two specialists together, you as an American labor historian and me as a South African labor historian. And um, uh, 
but certainly the um, the comparative dimension is is very interesting, and we look forward uh, very much to to the book in due course. But coming back specifically to African ports and your new book project looks at different aspects of the, um, these global cities, and one of the themes is containerization. You know, the, this uh, this this new technology that uh, in many ways destroyed many jobs, but also um, uh, opened up new possibilities of the workforces in both countries, in both South Africa and the United States, of of adapting as as workers have had to do over the centuries. One thinks of the Luddites in um, in Britain and the, the different the early industrial revolution and how artisans and workers came to terms with with new technologies. And um, again, one of our earlier podcasts, Keith Breckenridge discussed the uh, the latest iteration of technological change with the biometric state in South Africa. And so, I'm, really, I'm wondering about the the past and present of tech and present of technology in Durban Point uh, Port. Um, how have port workers and others coped with changing technology in this African port? So I appreciate the questions, complicated and important ones. Technology generally can change how people live their lives, change how people work, change whole societies and worlds. And one example of a technology that has done so that's often sort of overlooked simply because it's in our plain sight is the container, right? The metal box that loads cargo onto trucks, onto rails, onto ships. And the process called containerization also, of course, changes how people work in the, the field of transportation, whether it's land or rail or sea. Dock workers find that their work entirely changes, right? What had been really unchanged for the most part for millennia, right? Not just hundreds of years, but for millennia, um, will change within a generation, right? Um, and so one thing that will happen is that um, you will need far fewer people to do that work, um, at least because that's the way it was intended by employers. Now, like uh, the, the, an example of difference is how in the San Francisco Bay Area, a powerful union was able to negotiate the transition and essentially understanding that what the employers really want is actually control, but but more specifically reducing the number of workers on the waterfront. Um, they, the union was able to negotiate what they referred to as shrinking from the top, essentially buying out older members um, into early retirement so that one method, not the only one, but one method was logical in a sort, right, that we will pay people in what the leader of the ILW referred to as get a share of the machine, right? Like if there's going to be a financial benefit windfall from increased productivity, what we want is essentially a piece of that. Now, arguably, the union didn't do as good a job as they might have, but nevertheless, actually, dock workers on the American West Coast were able to sort of financially benefit, right? Um, although over time, what we see is essentially a drastic reduction in the number of workers, and that that's actually also incurred in recent times. Automation didn't stop in the 1960s and 1970s. Like, uh, I'd suggest that one interesting thing that could have been done differently is you don't reduce the number of workers, you actually reduce the number of hours each person works. Because I think the, the issue today is the same one, not just in maritime, but all industry is if technology destroys work but leaves you with nothing, literally no way to earn money, technology is bad, right? Or if technology is used and the benefits essentially are shared more democratically, then technology can be that dream that we all talk about, a labor-saving device, where, in fact, humans, not just corporations, benefit from 
these sorts of things. Now, we see a difference in Durban when this happens, Durban being not as an important port as San Francisco in the global economy, uh, containerized later. So in the late 1970s and early 80s, when it hit essentially hard in Durban, relatively late for containers, but nevertheless um, important, um, there was a 50% retrenchment inside of three years, right? Essentially overnight, the, the black workers having no union of any strength at that time and during the sort of the height of apartheid, late 70s, um, that workers took the entire brunt of the pain, right? Like uh, were fired in, in mass um, and were weakened considerably as a result of that. Yeah. Um, and so the other, um, so that's a whole interesting thing. The, the other interesting thing, sort of speaking to comparative, is how in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, uh, the port literally moved from the city of San Francisco to the city of Oakland because there was not enough space in the peninsula to handle hundreds of acres of essentially stacked metal boxes, right? Durban has not actually moved. The port of Durban, when you go there, if you spend time in Durban, right, it's a beautiful city and a beautiful sort of port right in the heart of the city. Very unusual because historically workers live near the ports, but now the ports often are on the, essentially on the exurbs, right, in this sort of outs the outskirts of a metropolitan area because of the space requirements, right? Um, and so in San Francisco, the entire port waterfront has been converted into various other things, mostly, say, housing and office space. And in Oakland is the port. In Durban, the port's still in the same place it was. And um, workers might have moved to other places instead of living near the waterfront anymore, but the port has struggled actually physically to expand given the reality of geographic limitations and there's this ongoing debate in the Durban area about expansion to the old airport in the southern part of the city um, where people would once again be displaced, a number of those people being formerly displaced from Cato Manor, right? Um, and that that has, therefore, historical as well as sort of contemporary resonance with the issue of displacement. Um, but uh, that's also essentially because of the technology, right? Um, because of containerization um, in most port cities, there have been essentially some areas that have gained a port and other areas that have lost a port. Um, New York City being actually in America, the most dramatic example, what was America's greatest port city lost its port, right? And tens of thousands of jobs that went with it um, in the 60s, right, um, really. So um, it's a whole other fascinating aspect of my work, separate from the social movement side, um, but it's uh, such an interesting and important part of the industry of maritime that I sort of wanted to sort of essentially engage in that conversation too. And picking up on this urban space and this kind of social geography that you're mapping out uh, of neighborhoods uh, and workspaces, Durban's very different from the Bay Area during the, the apartheid period. This is very stark in the way that the black dock workers are single men. They're housed in prison-like dormitories called hostels in San Francisco and, and, and Oakland. Going back to the talk you gave before uh, we met for this podcast, you know, there were nice family images uh, of the black longshoremen with their, you know, with their spouses and, and children and helping to desegregate some of the apartment uh, complexes in San Francisco. So essentially changing the, the residentially segregated patterns that cannot happen and did not happen in Durban until it was too late in a sense. Uh, the, the workers in Durban are with a foot in the countryside and a foot in the city. And, and that's important. And I think, uh, you know, it'll probably evolve in your, in your book, the, 
the role of this difference. But I also thought about the presence and the absence of women. And, and how does this shape this comparative history that you're trying to write of longshoremen's labor history, their political history, and their social history? So historically, this field was entirely male. Although now there are some women, it's still male-dominated, but there are some women who work on waterfront jobs in both South Africa and the United States. But in the past, that wasn't the case. It was simply like many manual labor jobs seen as sort of male only. Um, you might say that in the context of especially, um, well, in, in both places actually, the absence of women might make it easier for men to organize um, because they might form gender bonds as well, right? And so separate from the issue that there's no wives or children around, um, the fact that we're all men means that that's another thing we share in common, right? Like, and so gender is a sometimes forgotten aspect of essentially one way that people build solidarity, right? Like, uh, so um, I think that was one factor perhaps in why um, in many places dock workers often have organized union is because they could identify around their masculine identity, right? That they're masculine, they're manly men, they lift heavy loads and they work. And it's, work is dangerous. And danger is also in many societies sort of a machismo, right? Like a sort of a way to sort of be proud of being a man, right? And so I think that there's that. The absence of women, of course, as you pointed out, also means that um, Men can't help but feel like, well, I, if I uh, have an identity that means I'm a family member, like I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a son, right? Like, where is that family? And like you pointed out, during the apartheid era, um, Durban dockers lived in these all-male, all-docker hostels close to the waterfront. And therefore, we're separated, as were many black workers um, throughout the apartheid era. And so their homes were somewhere else, right? And they, they maintained that identity um, and were able to visit um, for some people, maybe monthly, for other people, perhaps for that one month of the year around Christmas time when they'd go home for the holidays. And um, that was still the case well into the 80s and 90s, really. Um, and uh, a friend and colleague named Ralph Calabert, who's done a lot of research also on Durban Dockers, talks about how many Durban dockers into the, who started working back, say, before 1959, um, so working in the 40s and 50s, who might have worked into the 1970s and 80s, all chose to retire back to rural KwaZulu. And that speaks volumes about their identity, right? Like, uh, it might also be a reality, like, I'm not going to have any income coming in, and maybe it's cheaper to live in a rural area. But over the course of perhaps decades of labor, in the city of Durban, they had perhaps saved up some money and able to sort of um, buy up something like a homestead, maybe some cattle and the like. Um, now that also might be have something to do with their ethnic identity, right? That for Zulus and Zulu men, the idea what is their masculinity about? It's not simply what they do, like it's your perhaps um, the wealth that you have invested in sort of livestock, right? Like, and so maybe there's part of that even in these urban proletarian workers, right? They maintain this sort of ties. And, and like you said, in, in the United States, an important difference is that African-Americans and the majority of dock workers in the Bay Area by the late 60s are African-American. When they moved um, away from generally the South, they didn't go back. And they, although they had family back home, and they might have an identity like I am originally from Louisiana or Texas or Arkansas. They never envisioned returning, and none of them retired back to the their their southern roots, right? And so, for um, African Americans, the Great Migration was actually a more total break, right? It was a one way where they moved to the San Francisco Bay Area, and they're never going home, right? Like they might identify originally as, and this isn't unique to dock workers, right? Um, 
what, like Huey Newton, right? Um, Bobby Seale, right? Uh, sort of African-Americans in Oakland who had Southern roots, but whose family were never going to go back to Texas, right? Uh, because things were worse there, essentially. And so it was better where they had moved to, um, but also because they were able to make at least something for themselves. And so it is an example of another important difference, really, between the primarily black dock workers in Durban and the primarily black dock workers of the Barrio. Can we move back uh, perhaps to the social movement uh, dimension? And um, an interesting connection, uh, I think, was between the formal anti-apartheid movement uh, in the North, if you like, and organized labor, something that's not always um, well appreciated by historians. And one example was Mary Louise Hooper, a Quaker in California and one of the founders of the U.S. anti-apartheid movement and a very close friend of the ANC chief in KwaZulu-Natal, the national president of the ANC, Albert Latuli. And we have her papers here at Michigan State University. Um, I was showing them to you recently. Um, so I was ask, wondering about what are the links between social or political movements and organized labor? And can you perhaps just very briefly, um, for the listeners, sketch the anti-apartheid history of San Francisco dock workers? I know that's very difficult to do briefly. Yeah, yeah, of course. No, I'm happy to. And have, it's, of course, as you know well, like one of the primary interests in my research for me, um, what drew me to it, like with many Americans and non-South Africans, it was the fight against apartheid that first got me interested in South Africa because it's an example of a relatively successful global social movement. I call it the most successful one of the post-World War II era, right? And I compare it to abolition of slavery in the 19th century. It's an inspiration. Um, not without problems and not without failures, but nevertheless very real, um, something that we can all look to, right? And so how did the global anti-apartheid movement operate? One of the key institutions was the labor movement globally in many countries and in many cities. Um, in the U.S., I'd say unfortunately because as labor, as its power of organized labor of unions has declined, Perhaps that's one of the reasons that the visibility of their importance to the anti-apartheid movement is less obvious than you might think. And so in the San Francisco Bay Area, where there was a relatively, for an American city, a pretty strong labor movement, the dock workers were not isolated. They were part of a much larger organized labor of the Bay Area, teachers, teamsters, um, shipbuilders, uh, beer workers, public sector workers, and the like. Um, but the barrier dock workers were really leaders, right? They were acknowledged as such. They had sort of been at the forefront of many sort of struggles in the barrier for equality, including racial equality within the U.S. And therefore, against um, South African apartheid, one example, right, is this woman you mentioned, Mary Louise Hooper, who was a close uh, confidant of Albert Latuli and then was exiled, essentially banished from South Africa, moves back to the U.S. in the late 1950s, and um, become, remains an activist for the next, what, 40 years or so. Um, and so just today, looking in the papers, like um, in 1962, longshore workers in the Bay Area, in San Francisco, refused to cross a community picket line led by Hooper. And she had some people also from the NAACP and other civil rights groups in the San Francisco area, primarily African-American, but with and Hooper's white and other whites. So the dock workers have a tradition like many union members and, and solidarity people, like not crossing a picket line, even though it's not a worker line, right? It's a community picket, but they don't cross it for a day in the late 1962. 
um, in honor of Human Rights Day, actually. Hooper had scheduled it for near Human Rights Day. So they throw up a picket at Pier 19, San Francisco, Dutch ship carrying South African cargo. Dock workers refuse to cross this line for two shifts, right? Um, what I think is the first anti-apartheid boycott by workers in America, right? And I suspected that Hooper had must, of course, bonded with and uh, organized with a man named Bill Chester, who was former Local 10 member who then had moved into the international leadership in this San Francisco-based organization, African-American man, Bill Chester, originally from Louisiana. And I knew that she had to have worked essentially inside-outside game, right? They threw up the community picket, but these dock workers didn't simply come upon that picket by mistake. They must have essentially known in advance that the picket was going to be thrown up, right? That would be the effective and wise strategy. But I had no evidence of this, right? I just knew that the action occurred in late December 62, and that was the first evidence of it in the union side, right? Um, but this morning, right, um, uh, Peter Lim shows me this correspondence, a single letter, not any others I saw at least yet, right? Like a that's pre-62. It's actually not talking about the action that I just described, but clearly indicates, therefore, that they knew each other, right? Um, and that Chester was the logical person, but apparently was the in union contact, right, um, for this action that Hooper organized, right? Um, right after the successful one in San Francisco in 62, actually, the American Committee on Africa essentially reached out to Brooklyn dock workers and organized a similar action in 63, which I've researched a little, and it's, I'm not going into it much detail, but um, essentially they must have used that as the blueprint, um, although I have no evidence of that, but it's obvious, right? Um, and so it's a great example, right, of really sort of the power of labor and also sort of the power of social movement activism across institutions and across movements, if you will, yeah. It seems to me that these kind of personal stories are also great for students in our classes to learn about this history because when we think in these grand terms, in these transnational terms, global terms, whatever you want to call it, it it's hard to make these connections come alive. But these individual actions and the stories that come with them are very powerful. Do you bring this kind of story into your classroom? How do you teach comparative history? I know you're an Americanist primarily, but uh, you do teach courses on comparative history that bring South Africa into it. What's your approach, and, and what have you learned from that experience? Right, so it's a great opportunity, and as anyone know who teaches any subject, whether it's in a formal classroom or not, by teaching something, you learn it better, right? And so by teaching South Africa and comparative U.S.-South African history, it's helped me immeasurably to learn much selfishly about South Africa from my own research and interests. And so I volunteered, and unfortunately, my university's Department of History has no Africanist, so I wasn't stepping in anyone's way nor really get, you know, making some student's life worse by teaching in lieu of a more experienced person. And so... Um, what I try to do with my students, right, uh, what anyone who's sort of here in the U.S. would know is um, assume nothing, right? So you start with the fact that the average American doesn't know really anything about South Africa. That's not an insult. That's just ignorance, right? Uh, and that's a, a problem, but it's not individual students' faults that they, you know, were essentially not taught anything about the entire continent of Africa, let alone a particular country on the southern tip. And so I start with, you know, uh, that assumption. And like anyone who teaches foreign lands, starts with maps, right? Like uh, you got to sort of let's get the lay of the land. We have to know these things. When I teach about America, I can assume that my students roughly know California, and where it is in location to other parts of the U.S. and some of the major cities. And they might have even been there, right? But you can't do that with South Africa. And that's just the way it is. And so 
um, you know, I start with those sorts of things, including like basic knowledge. And I always try and do a sort of a short history of South Africa, um, often using textbooks uh, to do so because um, you need to get up to speed. You can't have the serious in-depth high-level conversations until you have essentially a foundation to build upon. And so anytime I teach about South Africa, I just start with from scratch, right? Like uh, that's the way you have to do it. Um, I think personalizing is a great example. And so even though the book is enormously long and unfortunately out of print, um, the last time I taught South African history, I used The Seed is Mine, uh, the story of this black um, essentially farm worker who lived for most of the 20th century in a, in a sort of um, heroic life, even though he was a very ordinary human being, right? And it's a great example of how social history and biography, I think, can illuminate um, essentially the lives of people who otherwise you might not be able to connect to, right? And so I agree that um, biography um, and stories, um, the root of history, right, is um, really useful um, to teach people, including university students in America, about places that otherwise they might not be able to relate to very effectively. Um, I like to use my own work sometimes, right? And um, I hate, I've never made a dime off my students, but I'll give them an article I've written, right, or a paper I've written, and have them do it because I do think that uh, um, Americans also want to sort of feel that they're part of something, and we can plug into the anti-apartheid movement in a way um, that you might not be able to feel connected to maybe some other sort of struggles. But because the movement was global, I think many Americans can sort of more quickly and easily make connections. Well, what a, a, a web of uh, connections across class, race, and countries. Thanks so very much, Peter Cole, for speaking to Africa past and present. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Africa Past and Present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Digital Humanities and Social Sciences, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Technical assistance is provided by the Matrix Digital Media Lab. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit our website at afropod.aodl.org. The podcast is also available on iTunes. You can also send us email at africa.podcast.com at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.